0: And I am hoping by now you understand the, the uh, motivation of the writer of Hebrews and what his message is. It's summed up in this phrase that's in front of you right now. And basically it's this, Jesus is better. Can you say that with me? Jesus is better. Yeah. Yeah, every time you watch a commercial and, and someone says po- uh, Coke or Pepsi uh, is the real thing, uh, you can say... Jesus is better, right? Anything they're trying to sell you, Jesus is better. Amen? It is the real thing. You know, we've been studying the book of Hebrews. We've been seeing that there were people, the Jewish folks, who were really considering Jesus as Messiah, wondering if they should follow after Him. Is He really the Messiah and the one who brought salvation? And as they're making those decisions, what's happening is persecution is coming into that land and many of them are thinking of going back into Judaism, back to the temple and back to following after the priesthood and tabernacle worship because they had favor with the government there and favor with the rest of the Jews in their community because becoming a Christian was very difficult and brought persecution. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing this treatise to those who are considering leaving Messiah and going back to temple worship. They have obviously not made the full commitment to Christ, yet the writer is saying, I'm believing for better things with you. I also believe that this book is a prophetic book to the nation of Israel, to speak to them to consider Jesus as the Messiah. You'll remember last week that we saw that in fact Jesus fulfilled the high priest order of Melchizedek and that we're going into the deeper things that have been given to Israel, the oracles of God, and within them we find patterns, pictures, and shadows of what the Messiah is going to be and what he's going to accomplish. So last week we saw that Jesus is a better priest than the Levitical priesthood because he is a priestly order of the heavenly realm the order of Melchizedek so this morning let's take a look at what we've got starting at Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 the point of what we're saying is this we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary the true tabernacle set up by the Lord not by man so our first point he's trying to make is Jesus serves in a better sanctuary. I know that on Mount Zion in Israel, uh, there's a temple there for God, Jehovah, that was established, and the Jews uh, are thanking God for that, but the writer of Hebrews is saying, this temple's nothing. Jesus is in the true picture of what that temple represents. He's in heaven right now. He also adds this, that in that sanctuary, he's sitting down. Look at in the priesthood of the Old Testament, the priest wouldn't dare go into the Holy of Holies and sit down in the presence of God. He was fearing his life, trembling, that if the presence of God would accept the sacrifice for that year, and he didn't know. He himself had sin and had to cleanse himself. But Jesus had no sin. And Jesus went into the very presence of God, not something made by man. He went into that presence and it said that he sat... Down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That means his ministry of sacrifice is done. But his ministry as a high priest continues. So he is of a better sanctuary, isn't he? Let's take a look at this. He goes on to say he serves in the true tabernacle. Verse 3, Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law, but they serve in a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, this is interesting because here Jesus is in the heavenlies making intercession for the Lord and he's saying if he was on earth, he wouldn't be a priest because he was not a Levite. He was of the tribe of Judah. And he had no interest in the sense of offering in the temple sacrifice of bull and goats and animals. Jesus went into the real holy of holies The very presence of God himself, not something that's an imitation of heaven. The writer then goes on and says, you see, here's the deal, Israel. The tabernacle, the temple, it was in fact an imitation or a model or a representation of heaven. This isn't the end all. The holy of holies, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the bread, the laver, the lights, the incense. That wasn't the end of everything. It was only a picture of what was to come. In fact, he says, look it. Remember when Moses was instructed by God? God told Moses, you better see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. You see, the tabernacle of the Old Testament... In fact, everything in the Old Testament, is a model. How many of you built models when you were a kid? Model cars, model trains, model airplanes, right? I think one of the leading manufacturers was Ravel, right? Well, this is a model by Jehovah. And he told Moses it's going to be this measurement by this measurement, this by this, this by this. And what he was saying is, what I want you to do is make a model of heaven and what happens in the heavenlies you know that is so far beyond our comprehension to, to grasp that I mean the best thing we can do is cut wood and sculpt and nail it together and put some gold on it and have it smell with incense and light with fire but the thing the real temple in heaven is not made out of wood and gold and stone and flames and incense it's the reality of God's own presence When John the Revelator was taking up into heaven and he saw the throne of God, instead of seeing the lampstand and seeing a lamp with seven things lit, he saw a spirit, the seven spirits of God, the perfected Holy Spirit before the throne of God, burning. Now, how do you imitate that? Uh, Make it shiny. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, it's real interesting that God appeals to our imagination and he appeals to our creativity. But his creativity is so beyond our ability to grasp. But he puts his spirit in people so that they could try to comprehend what he's saying and what he's doing. In fact, I find it interesting that the very first person that it says the spirit of the Lord came upon was a guy named Bezalel. Bezalel was a sculptor, an artist, a craftsman. He was the guy that Moses got all the measurements from God and he said, here, you build it. <laughs> and he said, you better get it right. Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Okay. The Spirit of the Lord helped him and he had to craft a table and build it and shape things and, and in the foundry put gold and, and so forth and, and prepare all these things so that when people began to look at him, they would begin to consider what heaven was, what holy was, and what the presence of God was doing. The problem is over the years, these things became the reality for them. They lost touch with the presence of God. There was a time because of their sinfulness that the Shekinah, the presence of God that was hovering over this place, had to leave. And they were more interested in the clothes and the priest and the bracelets and the candles and everything else became what was holy to them apart from God. How about us? How many of us New Testament believers, how many of us Christians have made this the thing? That we come together on a Sunday. We sing songs. We have stained glass windows. We have wooden crosses. We have pictures and lights. and, And we say certain things together and do these certain things. And we think that's what's holy. When there is the very presence of God now more than ever since Christ bought us by His blood. Christ is here. Jesus is here. It's not about whether I like that song or I like the musician or I like the guy who's praying or even the guy speaking I can tolerate. But the presence of God is here. You see, they had a pattern of heaven and they fell in love with the pattern. Hey, I got a picture of my wife in my wallet, but I don't need to love this picture more than my wife. I wear a wedding band that means I'm married. But if I think this is more precious than my wife and my children, what's happened to me? I began to worship the objects instead of the one who commanded them to be made. Our God is a living God. Our God is a present God. And He's here for us this morning. And so Jesus doesn't serve in a temple made by hands. He serves in the very presence of God on our behalf. So all these things show us that God is present. It says in verse 6, they were to make everything according to the pattern. In verse 6 he says, but the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and it is founded on better promises. Not only does he serve in a better sanctuary, but his covenant is greater than the covenant of the Old Testament. Come on now, understand, put it in context. He's talking to the Jews, saying the covenant Jesus made is better than the covenant of Moses. Ooh, you better be right. And he's willing to make that statement to them because he understands the reality of what Christ accomplished. All of this Old Testament actually was a picture of him. It was all a cardboard cutout of him. How many of you ever see movie posters? Go to the video store, you see big movie posters, right? And, and, and uh, you, you see them in different stores and different things of particular people. Could you imagine if that person showed up? Right? What would you do? Stand in front of the cardboard cutout and say, hi, how are you? This is wonderful. You're beautiful. When the reality's right there. That's exactly what's happened here. Messiah has come. He is the showbread. He is the lampstand. He is the incense. He is the high priest. He is the temple. He is the Sabbath. He is the all in all. He's fulfilled all of it. And it is a better covenant with better promises. How many of you like better? I like better. How many of you want better? I want better. And how many of you know what Jesus is? Amen. All right. Now listen to this. He goes back to the Scripture because he needs to convince them or fully persuade them that Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. And so he goes back to the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31, and he begins to quote Jeremiah to prove to them that, in fact, there was coming a new covenant, And so as we read it, let's go on. He says this, God found fault with the people. Verse 7, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I'm going to repeat that. God said, there's a time coming when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. What would that make the covenant they're in? Old. Yeah, obsolete. So the new one's coming. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he's made the first one Obsolete or old, passed away. And what is obsolete is aging and will soon disappear. Basically, the Old Covenant is no longer functioning because Christ fulfilled it. He didn't come to destroy the law or abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. In other words, all of its requirements were met in Him. And so all the promises are now met in him. So if you meet him, <laughs> you've met the promises of God. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ Jesus. He has filled up and completed the old covenant, bringing forth a new covenant. You see, for what the law was weak and what it could do, the law couldn't save you and I. In fact, what the law was was basically a representation of the holiness of God, the very character of God Himself. And so the best we could do is we we just could never reach the fulfillment of that law. So Christ came to do it for us. And He fulfilled the entire law of the Old Covenant Oh, it's wonderful. A new covenant promise is here. It is a better promise, and it is eternal. Now that is good. Say eternal with me. The promises of God are what? Eternal. Eternal. Now he goes on because it just keeps getting better. He's a better priest in a better sanctuary offering a better covenant. Wow. We need to get in on this, don't you think? Let's go to chapter 9 now. All right, he goes on and he says this. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. And this was called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place or holy of holies, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna. Aaron's staff had budded and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail right now. I wished he would have. Wouldn't you have loved to hear his details? Well, let's take a few minutes. We'll discuss them in detail and the Spirit of God gives us revelation as to what they are, let's understand what the tabernacle did. Now remember, the tabernacle was what? A representation and foreshadow of heaven and Messiah's ministry. And so when you look at the tabernacle when it was originally set up, and later to be the temple, there was uh, the congregation of the, uh, the, the assembly here, where people would come through the gates... And what they would do is they would bring a sacrifice for their sin. As Paul says in the book of Romans, salvation has always been by faith, from first to last, from the very beginning. People think that the Jews thought that they were saved by their animal sacrifice. They were saved by faith. Because what would happen is they would have to atone for their sin. So they would bring an animal into the place to the priests, and by faith they would lay their hands on the animal, whether it was a turtle dove, whether it was a lamb, an oxen, whatever, and as they laid hands on the animal, they by faith were transferring their sin to the animal. That's called substitutionary atonement. They had their sins covered because an innocent one was going to die for their sins. And so the law was a tutor. It was teaching them about what Messiah was going to do. And uh, so they would lay their hand on that animal, feeling cleansed and feeling that their sin had passed. And that animal was clean, innocent, and it would die for their sins and what they did. The priests would take it to the brazen altar. That brazen altar is where they would butcher the animal and they would then basically barbecue it, burn it, and the fire of God would be upon it, showing the wrath of God upon sin. it might do some of us well to stand in front of a fire to consider (laughs) what God has done. Not seeing Jesus, we so often seem to belittle the sacrifice that was made for us. Maybe sometimes we need to stand in front of the fire and feel the heat and consider where we would be without Jesus Christ, our sacrifice. And so the priests would offer it. And then also the priests after they would offer it and butcher the animal, they would then, to cleanse themselves, to do their ministry in the holy place and holy of holies, would come to the water laver and wash their hands and cleanse themselves. Because how many of you know that you cannot ascend into the hill of the Lord without clean hands and a pure heart? And so they would wash themselves in preparation for approaching God. How many of you washed yourselves this morning in the sense of prayer study of the Word, preparing yourself to be in the presence of a holy God. I know He dwells in you at all times, and I know that by reading the Word is the washing of the Word in preparation. But I have to ask myself this, how much time do we really prepare ourselves to consider that we're standing before the Lord? Daily do we spend much time really cleansing our mind and having a clean conscience? how many of you know the power of a clean conscience? How many of you know that when you got through something and you didn't swear, you didn't do something against somebody else, you didn't do anything backbiting, you didn't lie, you actually did it right the way you think God would want it to be? How many of you feel like, hey, all right, I think I did okay. Feels good, doesn't it? How, how many of you like it when, when you know you are innocent in a situation, someone blames you and say hey, I'm clean, man. I did not do that. And they find out that's right, you were. And you had a clean conscience the whole time. You were tempted to gossip with the other people about this person. But you said, you know what? I feel the Lord doesn't want me to do this. I shouldn't do it. And you step away. Later, that thing falls apart and everybody's mad at each other. You're talking, you're gossiping, and you're going, I got clean hands. a clean heart before God. There's nothing like it. And so the water lever, the washing, knowing that you've been cleansed by the blood, you now daily wash. Jesus said this, I need to wash you And Peter said, oh, come on, Jesus, you don't need to wash me. You see, it was at the Passover meal, and it was the time in the meal where typically there was the passing of the basin of water to wash your hands, because by the law, you cannot touch food. You can't eat without the cleansing of the hands. And so when the water was passed around, Jesus picked the bowl up, and he uh, uh, took his tunic, right, and he strapped it around his waist, and instead of washing their hands, he knelt down and washed their feet. That's our high priest. Peter said, no, 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 don't do this, Lord. You can't do this. And he said, you need to be cleansed. It is something I must do. And then Peter said, Lord, if you want to do this, then you can wash my whole body. Jesus said, you have already been washed. Those who have taken a bath don't need to be washed, but your feet. You and I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You and I have been sanctified by Jesus Christ. We are a saved people. But I want you to know our feet get dirty. And Jesus wants to cleanse the soil from your feet today. He knows that you're secure in Him. But He knows there are areas that you need improvement. There are areas you need washing and tended to. And get this. Our Savior and High Priest is willing to do it. Come on. I bet I couldn't get half of you to take your shoes off and wash somebody else's feet. Do you know the kind of sin that our high priest goes into to cleanse? He is not afraid of it. He doesn't back off of it because he is the remedy. He is the solution. He's the answer to every sin here. No matter how grievous, our Savior is here to meet your need. Well, we go on and uh, he goes on to say that in the holy place, there's the lampstand And the high priest would come into the holy place, and they had to make sure that this was lit. And here he is, Jesus. Why do I say that? Because Jesus, when he said, I am the light of the world, was speaking specifically about the lampstand. He is the light of the world which illuminates that dark place of the holy place. We couldn't find our way in. We wouldn't know front to back or to side. But the lampstand lights our way unto the Lord. And Jesus said, I am the light. Goes on and they offer an incense, altar of incense. What's amazing is this is just a shadow and a type of the intercession of Jesus because the fragrance is the prayers of the saints, it says in the book of Revelation. And who intercedes and mediates for us? Jesus. And it says His Spirit groans in travail within us to offer intercession so that the will of God would be birthed in every decision we make. He's the sweet incense and the sweet fragrance of a sacrifice to the Father. It all points to Jesus. It's all Him. You want to leave Him and go back to metal and wood? Come on. But then there was once a year a time when the high priest had to make a sacrifice for all the nation of Israel. It was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And they would take the scapegoat and they would tie a ribbon around his neck and send him into the wilderness. And they would take another one and slay it uh, upon the altar and take the blood. And, oh boy, uh, this is the year. This is the time. The high priest would have to go into the holy place. He'd see the candelabra lit. He'd see the lampstand. He'd see the incense burning. He would see the showbread that represented the 12 tribes of Israel and that they would feed and eat of. Jesus said, I am the bread of life that will sustain you. And the high priest would come in. Now the high priest would have on his shoulders two onyx medallions that had the 12 tribes written on them. And he wore a breastplate in the front of his uh, tunic, that, his ephod, that uh, represented the twelve tribes, and he would carry the weight of the nation into the presence of God. And he would go forth with the censer and with the bowl of blood and step behind the veil of the holy of holies, a fearful. And dreadful thing to be in the presence of a holy God he didn't know if he was going to come out. There were little bells shaped as pomegranates around his his skirt, so that they could hear him jingle jangle jingle. I would imagine that as he approached closer the 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 bells would begin going <laughs> as his legs were knocking as he's presenting the blood before God. And he would walk through the veil that no one could walk through that separated him. And as he approached the very ark of God, inside that ark was the law of of God, the Ten Commandments given to Moses for the covenant of Israel. And in there as well is the priesthood. It was Aaron's rod that budded with almond blossoms to say that he was the priest. And there was a Levitical priesthood established by God. In there was also a jar of manna that they scooped up in the desert to show that God would always remain faithful as their provider. And that was in there. It was a testimony of God. His faithfulness, His holiness, His glory. And as He's approaching that, thank God He's on top of it. He'd see the cherubim and He would recognize that the top is in fact called the mercy seat. For the very crown of God and His glory relating to people is that He is merciful. Our God is merciful. When Jesus ha. Huh, that this man, this high priest, would come in and he had to first atone for his own sin before he could approach God. Knowing him as self a sinner, he would approach and he would dare to touch the ark with the blood by his thumb and put the blood on. And as he would come back out of that holy place and close the curtain, Israel knew. They were atoned for another year, another year, another year, just another year until more bull, more lambs, more goats had to be sacrificed. But there was a day when God gripped that veil and ripped it open in two because His Son cried from the cross. It is finished! It's complete! Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And the veil was ripped in two. The separation that kept God from man was now open so that whosoever would trust in that sacrifice could have eternal salvation and reconciliation to God forever. Wow. And I'll tell you why. Because there was a better Blood offered. That's why. Let's go on to see what our writer is telling us concerning the blood. He said this, When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly in the room, but never without the blood. The Holy Spirit, verse 8, was showing by this the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of the new order. Their consciences weren't cleansed because they would immediately go back into sin. Nothing changed in them. There was no righteousness attributed into their being. They were just covered for what they had done. But nothing in their nature changed. But the cross is in fact the place where we must die as well. Exchanging our nature in Adam so that it's put to death at the cross. So that we would take the nature of Christ. And a radical exchange takes place. Why? the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 11. When Christ came as High Priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by man, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, having obtained eternal Redemption. We can't leave that verse too quickly. Because it says He obtained salvation, not because He found a really big cow. Not because He found the perfect sheep. And He didn't ask someone else, is there someone here that I could use as a sacrifice? There's none holy, none righteous, no man, no intercessor that God could find. He had to make bare His own right arm. God so loved the world, He sent the Logos, He sent the Word, He sent the Eternal Son who put on flesh. God put on flesh so that God could have blood. So that God would offer Himself the pure and spotless Lamb to fulfill the justice of the law. That is amazing to me that God would do such a thing. You see, Jesus was born of a virgin. You see, the seed of Jesus came from God the Father, planted in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Therefore, His blood never mingled with the blood of Adam. Though He was fully man, completely man, born of a woman, had a complete human body and human uh, soul and human likeness, still God, fully God, fully man. But his blood was not tainted with the curse of Adam. Not fallen of that nature. His blood was clean and perfect. And so he could offer his blood for the entire redemption of mankind. His blood could pay the price. It was sinless. It was pure. It was spotless. He offered, the writer says, his blood. No one could be a substitute. No one could take that place. So we go on and he says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Verse 14 of chapter 9, How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Do you know your sins are forgiven today? Do you know the price that was paid so that you could be reconciled with the Father? That your conscience could be fully cleansed? I would ask you this morning, do you have a clean conscience? Pure hands and a clean heart that you can stand before God knowing that I am clean because the love of Jesus Christ went to the cross for me and He substituted Himself for my death and His blood cleanses me from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins, He is faithful and what? Just. That was a legal act that He did on the cross of Calvary. It was legal. It justified according to the law what was necessary to redeem mankind. So when we present ourselves and agree with God that we are sinners, He is faithful to go to the cross as He did for us, and He is just to have offered His blood for us so that we would be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Who would not have a grateful heart in serving the Lord Jesus Christ? How could you not go another minute without saying, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me. Tables and bread can't do it. Candles and flames. Incense and priests that have to wash their own sin in their own hands. None of it can do it. Jesus, in fact, said all of this has become obsolete. It's over. He said not one stone will remain in that temple. And in 70 A.D., just a few years after this was written, Titus, the Roman emperor, came in and he demolished Jerusalem. And that temple came down just as Jesus prophesied. There is no need for a temple anymore. There's a new sanctuary we can enter with a better priest and better blood. To cleanse us once for all time. You don't re-sacrifice Jesus every Sunday. You don't have to re-sacrifice and go back to doing that. There's once for all. Jesus prophesied not one stone would remain in that temple. I find it fascinating that according to history, Titus tried to keep his soldiers from destroying the temple but they were so furious with the stiff-necked Jews who would not surrender, who would not relinquish, that they were so mad and angry that the soldiers went in and they began to burn the temple. They burned it with so much fire, the heat got so intense that all the gold that was in the temple began to melt and it began to seep into the cracks and crevices of the brick of that building. By the end of the fire, it was over. The soldiers were so greedy, they began to dismantle the temple and take block after block off so they could get the gold that melted between the brick. Therefore, fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus said, not one stone will remain upon another. It's done. All of this pointed to him. To him who is glorious, who is great, who is wonderful. He is the greater sacrifice. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Verse 15. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that He has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. We cannot speak of this without understanding the passion of our Lord. We can't simply make this a legal treatise. We can't simply make this a religious observation. We can't let this be Sunday morning church. Jesus demands more of that. Look into those eyes and consider what Christ your Savior has done. That's just an image. That's someone play-acting. Nothing can compare to the gaze of our Master when He looks upon us. And He looks in our hearts. And He sees us. And He sees the love. We cannot make this covenant and the reality of Christ in the heavenlies something that is just a religious exercise. We can't make it just church activity. We can't step into this, sing our songs, do our things, lift our hands, say amen, and go out unchanged. We're meeting with Christ himself. His spirit is here. He gave you his life. He's given you his blood. This blood is better than bulls, goats, and animals. This blood has satisfied, this blood has satisfied the law of God and the holiness of the Father, to where all who are in this blood are new creations, and who are reconciled to the Father. Man. Now, let's get back to the point. And you want to leave this to go back to the temple? But we might be persecuted. People won't like us. We may lose our jobs. In fact, inevitably, we may lose our lives. Well, let me tell you something. If you go back to religion and you lose your life, you're in a whole heap of trouble. You're worse off than ever before. You must As the writer said, understand what comes with salvation. I know of, I believe for better things with you to enter into this salvation through Christ. Yes, you may lose your life. I don't know if we're ready for that here in America. I don't know if we're ready for this comprehending of what it would take. But I've been with Christians around the world. I remember serving communion in China to the underground church. I was ministering there with a number of uh, students in Bible school, about 23 young Chinese believers. We were hidden away, papers plastered over the window so no one could see us, no one could hear us. We had to worship silently. And they asked me to serve communion and we had to gather up whatever kind of cups we had, whatever kind of trays we had, hopefully having enough for everyone in that room. And I'll never forget when we passed out the bread and we began to pray and seek God and took the bread, they began to fall on their face and began to worship God for the great salvation they had. An hour later, we picked up the cup. I remember seeing the passion and the tears of those laying on the floors speaking their wonderful praises to their king who saved them then we came to the cup that declared the blood of the lamb and another hour of worship went by I'm not trying to compare us to them and say could you do an hour could you do this all I'm trying to say is if we could just get a hold of what this love is that he has for us and that we have for him I don't care if I die tonight I will live for my master. Lord Jesus. Oh, you are better, Jesus. How could anything compare with you? The better sacrifice, the better blood, the better sanctuary, the better everything. You are all in all. Jesus, you are better than anything in my life. And I will serve you and you alone. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads before the Lord.